This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by The Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear Love and Rockets on the stereo. So when you're in the Chicago area and you want that classic arcade experience, head over to The Underground Retrocade with row after row of the arcade games you remember and lots of new classics to try. You'll feel so alive. The Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Mike McGinnis. And I'm Carrington Vanston. And this is No Quarter, a weekly podcast about classic arcade games. You say weekly. But I do. Yes. We missed one. We did, yeah. And that's um I'm gonna blame that entirely on you, even though I'm pretty sure it's my fault. And actually, no, I think it was actually my fault. That, <laughs> that's one of the times where you're allowed to blame it on me. Every other time, totally you. This is one of those scheduling mishaps where I didn't feel like recording that night and made up an excuse and you weren't available for the next week. So all my other podcasts, um, except maybe RCR have frequently missed episode recording time. So I don't know why it sticks with me that we missed the one. I think because we were so close to getting it right. And missing one seems worse than missing well, like 40. And the one that we missed was right at the two-year mark, too. So Yeah, that was it. Yeah, right I'm, around. You know, I'm going to go back to blaming you again. <laughs> right around number 100 or something like that. So Number 100. Yeah, it sucks. and It's all your fault, sir. I'm sorry. No, you're not. Neither am I. I cannot defend my actions. Oh, see oh I, I see what you did there. <laughs> it's a little, little hint, a little subtle hint of what we're talking about this week. Because nobody would have gotten this week's game. I don't know if I'm actually looking forward to this week's game. Yeah, me either. Because is... it's too popular. Yeah, I don't. there's nothing to be said about this that, that hasn't already been said by, by people who are better at saying things than we are. Well, it's more, I feel all this pressure because there's so much out there about this game and it's such a legacy and, and everybody already knows everything. So all it is going to be is a deluge of pedantic feedback that tells us <laughs> the stuff we got wrong. <laughs> you know, here's what you got wrong this week. That's one thing Bubbles has over this game. It's like nobody knows anything about it. So you can say anything and no one knows how much we make up about these games. This should have been, we should have done Defender on, on April of next year. <laughs> we could just made up anything. Yeah, yeah. Or we should have done this like way back when, when we first started out and didn't know what we were doing. I felt anyway. no pressure in the Pac-Man episode. Absolutely. We started off, who knew, who knew what we'd be doing? I feel yeah. this pressure now. Right. So. Oh, well. Uh, but we'll get to that in just a minute. After these messages from <laughs> our feeder, feeder backers, feeder backers, <laughs> right? Very, very good. Not listeners. Feeder I'm backers. smooth. Um, well, one of my fellow podcasters with whom I do fellow podcasting over on RCR, Michael Mulhern, he wrote in to say he wrote he was one of a ton of people who wrote in to say basically this exact same thing. And I'm going to pick him because I podcast with him. He said, Mike and Carrington, regarding your request for feedback on playing classic arcade games on not-so-classic platforms, no. (laughs) Of course, I'm happy to hear you both wax lyrical over the trials and tribulations of playing the difficult-to-emulate games for whatever reason. And on that happy note, all I have to say is, tanks a lot. (laughs) So um, he wrote no. Everybody wrote no. I don't think we got a single person to even, like imply that maybe they'd be okay with it. It was just stern, direct nose all around. 
Yeah, and in fact, uh, there there is one no, I guess, though, letter that I feel is important to read because, well, it's somebody who's t- saying that I'm correct, and that doesn't happen very often, so I'm going to read it. And you're going did to you listen. make up this letter? Um, sure, I did. <laughs> uh, listener Quinn says... <laughs> oh, so we're just going to play the Here's Who I Podcast with game. I, I, I do one, you do one? Got it, okay. Well, pretty much, yeah. That's the gonna only get, reason I'm going to text Sherry and have me write, write, write me right now. <laughs> that's the only reason that she's writing in to agree with me is because I podcast with her. Um, and I love how she starts the letter out by saying, Listener Quinn says, uh, regarding the suggestion that you guys could play more, could play modern ports of classics which are difficult to find in the wild, my vote is a respectful no. Mike hit it. Uh, Mike hit on it when he talked about the code. Um, let's just sit and, and enjoy my my correctness there for just. A minute. <laughs> ah, nice. you know I edit the show, right? <laughs> no one's going to hear this part. <laughs> uh, any port uh, of a game to a different platform will always be different code and thus a different game. It might be subtle timing differences in the jumping, or tweaks to the scoring, or whatever. The nature, the nature, the nature of a port is that the developer will always be forced to make some changes. And we'll always find some fixes voluntarily. Uh, we'll always make some fixes voluntarily because why not while we're here? Uh, by definition, a port is always a different game. MAME is an acceptable compromise because the same code is executing on faithfully emulated versions of the same chips. For all intents and purposes, it's the same game. It's not perfect, of course, but without MAME, there would be no quarter, which there would be no no quarter, which just resolves to quarter. Uh, Tron on Xbox Live might be a great game and maybe fully deserving deserving of coverage on an Xbox Live podcast, but that's not why I listen to you guys. In conclusion, Apple II forever. That is, I'll, I'll agree with that conclusion. I might leave <laughs> that part in. No, else has to go. You, you, no, no, you'll you'll, you'll leave it. <laughs> I'll, I'll post the unofficial uh, no quarter bootleg version if you do that. So then I I will rebut with listener Cinecaster. <laughs> Listener Cinecaster wrote in to say, read the topic, because he's one of the few people who wrote us in a yes, and a really good yes, which I think we should focus mostly on. He says... Didn't I ban him a long time ago? He's unbanned for this one. (laughs) Great opening paragraph here. Read the topic of closed-mindedness in retro games that was discussed in the latest episode. I just want to say that Carrington's explanation was spot on. I was listening in my car and must have said, yes, exactly, out loud about ten times. Suck it, Mike. <laughs> this is the best letter we got. <laughs> so he goes on to say, I've had this same talk multiple times with people on the internet and in real life, and it has made me realize that us retrophiles are often quite misunderstood. To others, the whole thing just seems so confusing. Why would somebody willingly limit themselves to playing games with crude graphics and 1980s technology when they can just as easily play games that leverage the brute force power of modern high-speed processors and advanced 3D graphics engines. The fallacy here is the underlying assumption that there must be a positive correlation between magnitude of computing power and magnitude of entertainment value that necessarily follows from using using that computing power to make a video game. As soon as you accept that this correlation is imaginary, a preference for retro games doesn't seem so weird because then it simply becomes a matter of liking a different kind of video game rather than an outdated video game that's objectively inferior. Here are the facts. In general, when compared to modern video games, retro games are simpler in their controls, denser in their action, cleaner in their subject matter, unapologetic in their challenge, lighter on their tutorial fluff, completely devoid of in-game purchases, and significantly more flexible in the time investment they demand of the player. 
I'm not saying that these things make retro games objectively better than modern games. I'm simply attempting to make it crystal clear that retro gaming hobby is more is about more than liking old stuff just because it's old, which seems to be the common mis- misconception. Rather, it's about preferring games that exhibit certain traits that have fallen by the wayside to make room for other decidedly different traits, such as hyper-realistic graphics, expansive open worlds, cinematic cutscenes, uh, a race-to-the-bottom shock value via violence, gore, and sex, etc. Um, I thought that was an excellent letter. I thought that was really well put. And, and the idea of looking at retro games is just sort of like a kind of game, and no different than saying, I like action games, I like adventure games, well, I like retro games it's just a a different approach to gaming i agree with almost everything in that letter except the part about carrington being right (laughs) oh really i disagreed with a different part i disagreed (laughs) with the well no with the lack of in-app purchases if we're if we're going to look at classic arcade games they were in-app purchases. it was like you were literally putting buy more time born buy more time here here's a like there were a lot of quarter suckers and those were essentially in-app purchases of time um so in that sense they were there but it's a different sort of thing you weren't really buying oh other than what was the game we played just a week or two ago where it was uh, Lost Tomb? We'll, we'll buy more whips. <laughs> so there was in-app purchase in that one. So, but in general, yeah. yeah, I thought that was an excellent letter with great points well made. Especially that first point. The and being right point. Thank you, Cinecaster. <laughs> I'm going to have to deal with several weeks of Carrington's already inflated ego even being, being even larger. Thank you very much. <laughs> excellent. And we send uh, more letters. <laughs> I, yeah, no, he's, 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 uh, I, I like your point that um, – the continue function and what we saw in Lost Tomb, which was even a little bit, you know, closer to the in-app purchases was, you know, the, the continue function is certainly a, a rudimentary freemium model, I guess. Only there's no free to start with. You just continue to add money if you want to get further into the game. If we were one of those podcasts, like a lot of other podcasts that name, like come up with a title um, versus we just call it episode whatever, Defender in this case, um, I think – rudimentary freemium like that, that that would totally be our title rudimentary freemium model <laughs> sounds good to me good title yep from now on that'll be our show name um so turning to other feedback monty listener monty sorry wrote in to say i'm gonna stick with this listener thing i like it listener monty wrote in to say the reason you are attracted to satan's hollow in reno is because reno is hell on earth <laughs> <laughs> i just want to read that for our, our listeners in reno and apologize i think i might have been pretty harsh on that city last time I just didn't have fun. I'm just saying. Just saying. Uh, they had at least one more arcade than Toronto has, though. So you got that going for you, even <laughs> if it was a terrible arcade. Uh, if their mayor Mike, is nowhere near as cool as yours. <laughs> listener Mike, who's not you, a different Mike, wrote in to say, Hi, Carrington and Mike. In 1980, I was 11 years old and rode my bike to the arcade on a weekly basis. I played the games that were released from 79 to 84. After that, I got an Atari 600XL and then an Apple IIc and no longer frequented the arcades. But I played the arcade ports on both systems. I guess I'm lucky that my time in arcades coincided with the Golden Age. I want to make a suggestion for a game review. The game is Pulsar by Sega Gremlin, released in 1981. If you review it name, make sure you have the sound samples. I don't think anybody had suggested that before. I think that's a new suggestion. That's why I want to read it. Had we had anybody suggest Pulsar? I don't have a list in front of me. but then I'm going to go with no. Okay. Sounds good to that, me. That it's a new one. And thank sure, you for sure. the suggestion, Michael. I'll make sure that we stick it on the list of upcoming games. That list is long, I think. I think, holy cow, we have a long list of games to get to. At least like a dozen. Didn't somebody <laughs> write in and... Uh... I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I thought somebody wrote in to, to say, aren't you tired of, of 
playing crappy games or something. Like that, that would be listener Daryl. Nice. And that was actually the next feedback I was going to read. You huh. are better than you think at the segue thing. No, I'm not. But <laughs> listener Daryl wrote I'll in to say, it. hey, guys, I have a few suggestions. One. Aren't you guys tired of reviewing the stinkers? I know you received some feedback from people that like it when you review the bad games, but I'm on the other side of the fence. I guess it really depends on the game. Sometimes the bad ones, like Bubbles, are still enjoyable to hear you talk about them. Uh, Then there's others like Bega's Battle that are just painful to hear how bad it sucks and what an awful time you had playing it. So my suggestion is to have a policy of playing one of the more known and or popular games at least once a month. I think this would be a good happy medium of you guys getting to play something potentially more fun and the listeners getting to hear more about a game they've probably played growing up. Thoughts? So that was his first one. So what do you think, Mike? What do you think about that as a, as a general well, policy? His his recommendation is to, to play one of the, the more known and or popular games. Yeah, at least, at least once a month. Well, but I, I've one of the great things about doing this, and one of the reasons I think that we've probably been able to sustain our momentum for as long as we have and still enjoy it, is that not all, not all of the known uh, popular games are the are the great ones. We found a lot of really great gems that nobody's ever heard of, or that at least you and I have never played before that that aren't necessarily you know Defender, Donkey Kong, Pac Man. Um, so I, I don't necessarily want to. I don't think it's a good idea to to stay away from games we've not heard of before. But then I don't, I mean, do we just like pick a game? Oh, halfway through the week decide, oh, this is crap and switch. Or I don't know. Well, no, but if we're picking, if we had a, hey, let's make sure once a month you do something that both of us have heard of. Though I do think if you look back, I'm I'm looking through our list of, of games we've we've done. And most of them seem familiar to me. Now, I wonder if they're familiar to me now only because we've reviewed them. We've talked about them. <laughs> Well, but, and, I mean, and, lots in a row. Ms. Pac-Man, Megazone, I don't think I knew about, or Springer. But before that was Moonwalker. Oh, then the Horseshoes Lost one. Tomb. You didn't know about that until you right. played it. Dark Planet. I see there's a mistake in our show notes where it's called Dark Planet 4400. <laughs> I think that was one of our scores. <laughs> um, I'll correct that. Whoops. Uh, but then Bosconian, Robocop, Marble Madness. I knew all those, but then Volified. You know what? Oh, Volified. We reviewed Volfide for show 83. That doesn't even ring a bell. What the heck is yeah, Volfide? I, I, I don't Volfied? Did we review that? Oh, my goodness. So there's shows like that. Then after that, oh, New York, New York. That's <laughs> one that sticks with me. There, There is one. Cloak and Dagger, Joust, Dungeons & Dragons. Before that was Sorry, Charlie. That's one I hadn't heard of before. <laughs> anyway, we have done, I think, probably a pretty good mix. I think it's more that sometimes I haven't even heard of them if they were big games. <laughs> My my depth of knowledge is sometimes, I don't know if we'd actually use the word depth to, to describe it, but I don't think it's a bad thing to, to at least keep our eye on the, the fact that it shouldn't be all like, you know, generic games we've never heard of. Because there are hundreds out there that are we would have heard of that we could make sure are part of the mix. Sure, I, I agree with that. And unfortunately, one of the problems, and, and you'll hear this today, uh, in just a few minutes actually, is when we talk about especially the really popular games, it's hard to it's hard to say things about a game like Defender that haven't already been said dozens of times by people who are more eloquent and intelligent than we are. Um, I, I completely agree. I found a lot of pressure on this week because while there's tons of info about Defender, I have heard that info on many other podcasts. I've I've read it for years, 
and it just seems so old hat. It's like, ah, oh, do, do we need it? Like, isn't it boring to talk about that because everybody already knows it? Whereas when we talk about a game that's a little more obscure, it seems like every piece of information I find about it is worth talking about. Not only because there's less of it, so it's easier to edit down to what you're going to say, mm-hmm. but also because it feels fresh and new in a way that I don't feel like I've got anything new to say about Defender. It's not going to be news to anybody that I sucked at it this week. <laughs> anybody who's a long-time listener to the show knows I'm not very good at video games anyway, and this is one of the hard ones. So. Well, somebody wrote in and asked us, uh, saying he said something about, uh, I hope at least one of you broke 20,000. And uh, my response was, isn't 20,000 like a world record or something like that? <laughs> I broke 20,000. <laughs> I, I did too. So um, there we go. And Well, and I, I think maybe today the important thing to do is is we'll get the kind of, the you know, we'll cover the basics, the, the chip and, and maybe, you know, the designers and a little bit of the history, but just kind of to focus really on on what our playing experience was this time, uh, because that's, that's the only thing that's going to be unique about us talking about defender. We are unique. We're no unique little snowflakes. <laughs> well, Carrington is. So listen, listener Daryl also had another, another suggestion. Number two, he wrote in to say, uh, I don't know if this is an iTunes only thing, but I've seen other podcasts embed their show notes into the audio file. So you can click the links while the show is playing. Is there any way you guys can do this? Sometimes it's nice to link off whatever it is that you're talking about in context of listening to the show at the same time. However, I find that sometimes I forget to go back and look at the show notes because it's not part of the listening experience. I know first world problems. Um, totally is something doable. I got dragged into having show notes because Mike sort of just assumed there'd be show notes. And I was like, okay, so we have show notes. You'll notice that on other podcasts I've done, there are no mm. show notes. So on the Monster Feed site where I implemented the CMS, I, I then put together a system that would embed show notes into the, into the post that goes online. I could embed them in, in the episode as well. I don't think that's difficult. So I think just laziness has stopped me. So we've had a couple of people suggest it. So I think I will start doing that shortly. I, I'm not going to go back and embed it in the previous shows because I'm way too lazy for that. But I could start doing it going forward. Oh, sure. Fine. When when our listeners suggest it, you get right on that. When <laughs> you I didn't suggest even suggest something. show notes. I remember back in show one, you just threw out show notes. I remember I think it was during the first episode. I went, oh, I guess we're having show notes. <laughs> All of my suggestions so far have just been tossed aside with a, a round email of, of, of mockery and discouragement and I have sarcasm. that as a template. <laughs> It autofills. Like when I just said Mike, it just autofills round <laughs> mockery. <laughs> He's got like a little macro that, that selects random paragraphs. Actually, of, actually, of derision uh, and mockery. I upgraded to Yosemite. It ships with that macro. <laughs> um, what a great reason to upgrade to Yosemite. <laughs> Certainly wasn't for Skype this morning. Oh no, we had we had some trouble. See, we're both like I can't see you. Can you see me? No, I can't see you. <laughs> Skype wants to pick up the microphone. Skype wants to ignore call recorder. Skype just don't want to see people. Oh my goodness, yeah, difficult this morning. Mm, uh, anyway, um, listener Daryl ended his uh, podcast with a suge- or his uh, ed- letter with another game suggestion. He said, I wanted to add Bomb Jack to the list of game Ooh, suggestions. Yeah. I think Carrington mentioned playing this game in the Multicade way back on his first visit to the Underground Retrocade. I think Carrington did as well. He said, talking about himself in the third person like a basketball <laughs> player. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely would like to, like to add that. So I think that should go on the list as well. I feel like playing that now, actually. We should add that upcoming. <laughs> All right, well, let's just wrap up the show and we'll go play Bomb Jack. Excellent. Well, that was our Defender episode. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll My score was week. seven. <laughs> so, but we should, um, why don't we dive in, yeah, suck it up, and actually do this, do this Defender thing. Weirdly, I, I can't, I, I'm so unenthused about talking about the Defender, not because 
I didn't like the game. I actually liked it a lot. I just, yeah. you know, like I said, we've we talked, it's been, this has been talked about by everyone over and over again. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a game that, yeah, we, we obviously it's, we're going to play it because it, it's one of the top, probably three games, uh, three arcade games ever created. But well, I think it's in the top two of moneymakers. So it's earned it? over a billion dollars a year worldwide as has mm. Pac-Man. And yeah, those two, depending on where you read, those are the two that have made the most just in their game. Pac-Man as a series has has made more because of things like TV shows and stuff. But if you look at just like quarters in the machine, um, Defender and Pac-Man seem to be neck and neck for number one. So it is it is a big one. And it's great. I mean, as much as, okay, we've been down so far because it's from a podcasting standpoint, it's hard to say, okay, let's dive in and talk about it. What are we going to say that hasn't been said a thousand times? But putting that aside, just as a game, it's hard as heck and fantastically implemented. Like, those are the two big things about it. Uh, so it's a Williams game from 1980? Is this 1980? 81, actually. 81. Ta-da! No, 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 no. I, no, absolutely not. Oh, come on, Dave. Hear me no. out. Hear me out. With a cash cow like this, we will not only save money, we will actually make it one quarter at a time. Okay, get it out of here. Get it out of here quickly. Dave, come on. With a pinball machine like this, the Well, the first revenue... of all, it is not a pinball machine. It is Stargate Defender, a classic arcade game from 1981. <laughs> the glory days before the 16-bit processors. <laughs> All the no, the idea is to save the humanoids. That is, if the Alabian space guppies don't get to you first. Really? Oh, cool. So you've played this game before? No. It just seems like common sense. So I'm reading uh, on ArcadeHistory.com, uh, the, the page for Defender, and it, uh, there, there's a note in their trivia section that says that, yes, the title screen says 1980, but it was released in February of 1981. So it was probably uh, designed and intended for a late, uh, a late 1980 release, and and they well, it was that there reason. was that show, the AVOC yeah, they, or whatever they, it was. They the were 81, to... yeah, 1981 Chicago Arcade Machine Trade Show. I already know people have paused the podcast and they're writing us email. <laughs> AMOA, like, like, that's it. And they're already sending us email saying, uh, actually, uh, if you recall, it was six months delayed. Like, and and everyone's talked about that. Like, it was supposed to be delayed. The guy who was the the fellow who made it, well, Eugene Jarvis. So it was a pinball fellow tasked with making the video game. I think it was the first really new Williams games. Like it wasn't the first Williams game, but the thing they had at least one game before was like a Pong game. But it was the first game I think they were trying to make something brand new, not a version of something else. And even so, I think they spent like six months developing games that were variants of asteroids or variant of space invaders and there's like a long story in the development of that sort of thing no reason to write in that sort of thing went on in general is what i'm saying Gen general folks general do not send me your hate mail and it was quite a long time coming and then the, the idea of let's do a like sort of a space invaders tilted on its side so you're going to fly up and down rather than left and right so your movement is that way and then use a thrust button to move but then the, the i think the big thing like the big notion that 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 unlocked Defender as a game and that separated it from a lot of other things was this more open world scrolling thing. I don't know if it was necessarily the first horizontal scrolling shooter, but it's the first one I remember playing and it's certainly one of the very earliest ones. So you've got this idea that you've got the game world on screen is only a part of the overall live game world. So you're flying left and right and you've got that radar. And so the radar shows you like the overall game that's happening along a very large horizontal play field of which you're only seeing that slice that is on the screen at a time. Um, 
So that itself was like like a big deal and really interesting. And and so we've talked about other games that have, use radar and talked about other games that slide back and forth, but they're all in a lot of ways borrowing from the the legacy of Defender, which did have a massive legacy and a massive impact. Um on subsequent games, especially given how it wasn't really at first a massive success. It's funny that it's taken in a billion dollars, but I think when people first saw it, like at that show and, and the, like when you're looking at the trade show audience, people want to walk up. They just want to play it. And this is an incredibly hard game. Just smacks you down right away. It says, no, you are not good enough for me. But in an arcade environment where people are going and looking for challenges and spending more time, I think it really found its niche and it found people can say, yes, I'm looking for something I can really sort of devote time to and, and improve. And this is a game that, you know, can play infinitely and, and will continually challenge you. What do you got to say to that, Mike? <laughs> My brain just went blank. <laughs> uh, I was actually reading uh, still on the arcade history.com webpage. And you'd, you'd mentioned um, Eugene Jarvis. Uh, and AMOA, and it, it's interesting, and, and I don't know if this is what caused the, the delay in the release, but uh, when Eugene and his team were burning the new ROMs for the game, um, they, I guess, plugged them in backwards and fried them, a whole bunch of them. Oh, gosh. Um, and See, so, the game's even hard to play by when you're making it. <laughs> <laughs> it, said, uh, it says, Defender was noted both for its superb sound visual effects and, moreover, its extremely demanding gameplay. This did not, however, stop players from accumulating millions of points when playing the game. Uh, which <laughs> stops I, me from it certainly stopped me from from it as well. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a, a a rich and and varied history about the game that we won't get into because we'll get letters going. So I can link to a this. really good site. There's a nice um, something called uh, on Gamma Sutra. They have a nice write up called the History of Defender: The Joys of Difficult Games, mm -hmm. and yeah. it talks about this game, and then it talks about sort of the legacy and games that come afterwards, and the idea of that shift two difficult games. So I would just point people at that. Like that's a really good read. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Game of Sutras, their articles, especially about the vintage and classic uh, arcade games are always top uh, of my reading lists when they come out. Um, you know, you, you turn, you, when you turn the, the cabinet on, or I guess when you boot the ROM for the first time in, in MAME, uh, you know, immediately that you're playing a Williams game. It's got the um, kind of that, that sort of modulated electronic sound and, and the colors are very specific to uh, to Williams arcade games. They have that sort of orange and red and yellow uh, that that nobody else seemed to have. They have the the sort of confusing high score sheets that that, that have dozens and dozens of of the scores, but then they have like daily high scores that roll over. And everything about this game is very complex, but it, it's so well done that all of these all of these difficult pieces come together, and even even somebody like me who just sucks at this game, I still had a really great time and I kept playing it all week long. I didn't really get much better, but I finally, maybe yesterday or the day before, started to kind of figure out the, I, I wasn't having to manually search my memory for which button to press to, to do what. And, and it started to feel a little bit more natural. And that's kind of when my scores went up a little, not a whole lot, but they did go up a little. And so I, I get why it would be appealing. Now, as a, as a 10 year old or a nine year old in the arcades at the time, this would not have gotten more than a couple of quarters for me just because I had to feed so many virtual quarters into MAME just to kind of get to the point where I wasn't dying within a few seconds or, or I figure did play out it what as I was a kid doing. Though. 
I, I would play. It's a game that I, I, I kind of liked and I would play, but you're like you, I didn't pump a lot into defender because it was a, always a fast game for me. Like it was, I wasn't getting a lot of gameplay for my quarter when it came to defender. Cause it was just too hard for me. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, there were enough other games out there that, that I could play longer and better that I never really kind of got back to it. So uh, <laughs> I like the I, the point that you made though about it being obviously a Williams game. It's interesting note because they like were talking about it at the beginning. This is essentially the first new Williams game. Like it wasn't the first video game they made, and they had made pinball before that. But it was like this was the beginning of Williams making new Williams properties, and it gets so much that right away is obviously what we see later on. Like you, like the scores, the sounds, you can immediately tell a Williams game. Like it has a, it's like its own genre. The, the, the nature of the colors, the nature of the sounds, the way the colors sort of are iridescent and slide through things. It's, all of that is found in this first one. So it's not like they did a bunch of games and eventually developed that style. It's like they had a very strong style right from the beginning. And I find that really interesting. Right, and, and I should, I guess, uh, um, be more specific and say that this is now. You know, when you when you play a defender game, now, obviously, if you were one of the first people to play it, or or you know, when when it first hit the market, you didn't immediately go, "Oh, look, a a Williams game." Although I imagine it didn't take long to get to that point because pretty much everything that they put out after this um, that was that was um, based on the same technology looked and, and sounded and felt like a Williams arcade game. Yep. It's 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 a, it's a good, nice, clear, nice, clear style to it. I like it. Yeah. So arcade history describes the game as a defender is a legendary side scrolling shoot 'em up the very first of its genre, which again, I, I don't think that's true. I think there was another side scroller first. I think so um, too. And I wish I could think it's like on the tip of my brain, but I don't believe this is the first horizontal yeah, shooter. I, I think there was another one that came first. Yeah. Somebody will write um, in about that one. The, the aim is to pilot a laser firing spaceship and protect the humanoids stranded on the planet's surface from swarms <laughs> of alien. Protect abductors. and also sometimes <laughs> just shoot. <laughs> yes. You can do, I, that I do a too. lot less protecting yeah. sometimes. Uh, a long range scanner. Uh, you mentioned the long range scanner at the top of the screen shows the positions of both the humanoids and the attacking aliens. The ideal strategy is to shoot down the alien ships before they reach the humanoids. Um, if a humanoid is captured, the alien abductor can still be destroyed, but the player must then catch the falling humanoid and return it to safely to the planet's surface before it falls to its death. This was not something I was ever able to do. Uh, to oh, I can, I can catch them, but no, I'm not great at it. I don't oh, have no. a lot of fine left and right control. <laughs> and when you reverse, like you hit your reverse button, it you move on the screen, right? Like it doesn't just reverse in place because it slides you over to, if you're going to face, if you're facing right, you're on the left side of the screen, kind of, and if you're facing left, you're on the right side of the screen. And it, it until you start thrusting. So it, it that movement messes me up and messes up my orientation. Ugh. Also, luckily, it can also mess up bad guys. So, like when those baiters come, you can sort of hit reverse twice really quick, and they'll sort of shoot past you. So I started to use use that disorientation. I'm like, oh, everybody else is getting disoriented too. Okay, let's let's start using it. If an invader is allowed to carry its victim to the very top of the screen, the humanoid mutates and becomes a permanent part of that alien that captured it. That's why I don't feel guilty if I shoot the humans on the ground. I'm saving them from a fate much worse than this. So it's okay when this defender flies low and just blows away all the humans. Partly because it's fun, but partly because I'm doing it for their own good. <laughs> this new and deadly mutation will then immediately join in the alien attack 
Uh, and spend all this time defending them, and then they just turn on me in a heartbeat. <laughs> and and that's pretty much the the basic mechanic of the game. It, it gets obviously it's difficult to begin. Well, that with sounds and, easy. <laughs> and, the and way you gets, say it, it makes it sound like a game I'll be a master of. It gets really intense really quickly because the the ships speed up, and there's a lot more of them. Uh, you do have a couple of defensive options. You can you hit the smart bomb, which blows up everything on the screen, but you don't have that uh, very often that you can you can do that. And there's the hyperspace button, which randomly warps you to another part yeah. of the level. That's just kill, right kill me into, elsewhere button. <laughs> right into another alien that's just... Yeah, totally. Just I don't want to die here. Me. I want to die there. That's what that button <laughs> means. Um, so there's a total of five buttons, which that's, and this is what drove me drives me crazy. Um is I, I'm used to playing space games where I rely on the joystick for movement. Um, um, left and right, usually, you know, in, in a, a side-scrolling game, to me, my brain goes left and right, go accelerate left or uh, turn around and accelerate the other way, where with this, you have the th- um, thrust and fire button, um, or I'm sorry, the thrust and reverse button that control which way you're you're facing and how quickly you're moving. And it's for me, that was a huge challenge to try and over, overcome the the instinct to use the joystick to do those things yeah 100 percent. like if this was a game where you just moved laterally by left and right motion of the joystick rather than being just a two-way and up down joystick i would find it so much easier <laughs> with a four-way joystick and three buttons right. um but alas that's not the game yep it's actually like you said it's a two-way uh, vertical joystick the joystick will only moves you up and down and everything else is controlled through those buttons uh, it features a Motorola M6809 at 1 megahertz. The sound is um, generated by an M6808 at uh, 8.9, I'm sorry, 894.75 kilohertz and a DAC for uh, sound generation. The monitor is interesting because not only is this a game that uses a, a much more horizontal space than you view and a much more like horizontally massive space than most other games would have at the time. Like if you're playing... I don't know, Popeye, you see the whole gameplay, the whole game uh, world at once, where here you only see a slice of it. It's also interesting that they selected a monitor with a wider horizontal resolution than most monitors. Like most things at the time were basically 256 by 256 or using some smaller version of that available size. And they chose a monitor that's 320 by 256. So it's a basically, a, they selected a widescreen monitor. And I think that helps a lot with the look of the of the game and also helps a lot with the gameplay. Like the whole point is see as much horizontally as you can. So a nice uh, choice there, I think um, uh, hardware wise. Yeah. I think that works well with the long range radar thing that goes on at the top of the screens. Cause it's got those little white brackets uh, on the top and bottom that sort of sh- show you that that's where the screen that you're seeing below is, is, is what's bracketed up above. And, uh, but there's a that's much also, wider... That's a great design choice. That's such a clear bit of graphics. That's so, because all it is is a vertical box, and you're right, they just have like a little white bracket at the top and the bottom, and it says this is the slice, and it's so obvious that, okay, this is the slice you're seeing. Um, that is just a, a, a masterful choice for the, like, a minimalist view. Like, it's so well done. There's some great graphics. I, I love the colors, the scintillating colors of this game, and the the way things sort of warp in and warp out with the, like, the sort of the dots. It's just so nice. It's just, it's a beautiful game to look at. Well, and getting back to the long range radar for just a second, the I, I like the fact that the the chunk, the slice that you are seeing up at the top of the screen there, is actually um, indicates you know that, that you're seeing very little of the screen of the, the play field down below, and you have this nice big horizontal play area 
um, that you're actually in it. It's obviously that's kind of illusory, illusory, but um, that and, and the, the horizontal or the, the sort of different monitor hardware that you described all work really well to kind of give you the illusion that, that you're playing on this really wide horizontal play field. And, and that kind of helps with the, helps your brain buy into the, the scrolling and, and this, Oh, this all really makes sense. And the rules, everything fits together well. And like when you add that to the outstanding, the graphics are really incredible, especially considering this is 1981 and the sound and everything else. I just, I, I can't think of a better, a game that feels more complete and polished than defender. Mm-hmm. No, one thing I want to, I want to make sure before we get corrections as well. Like when I say <laughs> it's a, like the 320 horizontal resolution, like so it's basically a widescreen monitor. I don't mean physically it's a widescreen. Like right, it looks yeah, it's, the it's same. Not. But it's just, it's by packing those more pixels in, you end up with like sort of the illusion of a much higher resolution. Like when it's one of those games where it's 1981, you step up and it looks like, hey, is this a next-gen monitor? Just like having that extra 50% horizontal resolution gives you such essentially clear-looking graphics and there's and such subtle movements as things are flying back and forth. Um, and you and because your laser is sort of like a streak that leaves little dots, you end up with so many little dots in there. So it's a, it's a it effectively makes the graphics look so much sharper and so much more vibrant because of that monitor choice. That's really what I was talking about. So I figured people were firing up there. It's not horizontal. I'm like, <laughs> yes, it's not physically widescreen. I just meant that way. So see, that's the problem with talking about Sound Defender. I'm so I'm so paranoid that I'm making mistakes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we really can't worry about that too much. Uh, I will continue. Now um Another thing I want to talk about is the the bad guys in the games because because there, there's lots of there's so much frantic stuff going on. So there are I made a little list while I was playing. So I found basically six different bad guys. There's the I think they're called the landers. You know the ones that go down and pick up your your humans, your your little wandering humans. They're just want, little astronauts wandering around in mountains. Don't seem to want to go anywhere. Don't want to hide. Just walk around useless. This is why I shoot them. Um, and then like if they if a lander picks up a a human and gets all the way to the top, then they become a mutant. And so, and I guess like, I don't know if the, we're supposed to think the mutant is like the ship and the human together, or it's just the human, the, the lander has gone away and then left the mutant or something. But anyway, that's your, you are the bad guy. There's the bombers that release, they say really floating bombs, but I just think of them as mines. Like they basically are mining the space. Um, there's the pods, which when you shoot them, they a, a, these swarmers come out like basically you you turn one bad guy into a bunch of bad guys <laughs> it seems to be random like you get anywhere from they say one to seven but i don't know anytime i shoot a pot and i only get one bad guy it seems to always be a bunch usually like three or four but you get a, a bunch of bunch of swarmers luckily um the swarmers i find the easiest to shoot because they can't shoot backwards so you can sort of hit reverse and they fly past you and they keep going and now you're behind them you're like oh well isn't this convenient so i like i actually like the swarmers and then there are those really really fast ones i think they're called baiters i'm not really sure but the ones that are faster than you and that's the one where i was learning to hit reverse twice to kind of make it fly past me and then i could aim at it but when i hit reverse it just you know confuses me and then i hit reverse a second time and i'm like okay where am i i mean am i playing donkey kong what's going on so uh point wise everything seems to be basically 150 to 250 points other than the pods the pods you get a thousand points for shooting a pod so that's nice and then it releases a bunch of swarmers and you get points for shooting all those so the pods are also nice point givers and you get points if you 
if you save a human, you get like 500 points for that. So it's a good one. And then when you, if you successfully catch the human and deliver him back to the ground, you get 500 points for that one. If the human though, sometimes I find you can shoot the the landers that have grabbed a human. You shoot the lander instead of the human. Usually that's not what I do. Usually I'm blown away the human by accident. But if you shoot the lander, the human can be at some sort of height where it'll drop safely. Like there's a point at which if it's low enough, you can shoot and it'll just land and you get, I think, 250 points for that. You don't have to save it. But if he drops from a, a high height, like you were saying, you got to grab him or he goes splat. And then supposedly you get 25 points for being shot. If you get hit by an enemy bullet, you get 25 points. Yeah, I never, ever got a score that ended in 25. So I find that weird. Yeah, very strange. Not yeah. sure where that, that came from. Unless you always get an even number of, of men. If you get an even number of ships, then it would always give you 50s, I guess. But I only got scores that ended in 50 or 100s. So, yeah, me too. Um... Oh, and then there's a bonus at the end of the wave. And I was, I think, like wave one, you get 100 points per, like per human. Yeah, yeah you, you get so many points for each human left. You get like 100 points for wave one, 200 points for wave two, etc. And then I think at wave five and above, and this is only something I've read about, but supposedly on wave five and above, you get 500 points. It never goes above that. So the goal, in a sense, in one way is to, like your overall goal is defend the humans. Because if all the humans are dead, because that's the game, Defender, that's the name. So if all the humans die, then the world sort of explodes. And, and so you've got to always have at least a couple of humans around. So in theory, the goal is defend the humans. And also you're going to get that big bonus at the end of the wave for the most humans left. But the reality is once I got basically level two, but I, I've made it to level three. <laughs> this is how bad this game I am. But even by that point, everything's so frantic and the world is so big and the humans are so spread out. I can't defend them. So, and the mutants are such a bad enemy. Like they're so, they're, they're fast and they're just, I don't like the mutants. I find it's better as a general strategy to go and kill most of the humans myself and leave. I don't know if this is a terrible word, but what I try to do is kill all the humans except for maybe three or four. And then I can just defend a couple of humans and then I'm less likely to get mutants. Does that make me a sociopath? I do not know, but this is the technique I use. I think it does. <laughs> okay. What about you? Like, do you have any, stra- I got a couple of strategies. I wrote here. Do you have general gaming strategies to teach people <laughs> about our mastery of this game? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I did not. Well, I got a couple. I'll tell you my strategies, Mike, and then that will improve your gameplay to Carrington levels. Excellent. <laughs> the first is I try to stay low. <laughs> I see. I find the higher I go, the more the more I die. So I try to stay low. Um, I started using. I read this somewhere. Somebody said you should use fly and thrust. Oh, sorry. Um, the shoot and thrust. Fly and thrust. At 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 as this at the same time. So instead of just thrusting madly <laughs> this has become a different podcast so instead of just like holding on thrust and shoot and, and pressing shoot i'm like if i if i'm pressing thrust i'm pressing fire like just think of them as a single button and just press them like that all the time um and then that actually did increase my success like any and like just constantly i'm just constantly pressing those just like sort of spamming those buttons um uh, shoot the landers when they pick up your humans. I don't know if you figured that part out, but that that was one of my yes. strategies. <laughs> you do, so you should do that, Mike. In case you hadn't figured that part out, this is a tip from me to you, baby. Shoot the shoot them when they kill the humans. Also, my other strategy was screw that, kill most of the humans yourself. That was my next note. Like I talked about, start shooting humans. And then though, the big one is there's an international dateline. I guess or whatever you call it in this game. Have you did you notice that? Yes. There's that thing. 
I don't know how I'm going to describe it to people. Everyone's going to write in saying, see, this is why we don't listen to your podcast yep. when it's a good show. But there's this line that is considered like sort of like the edge, the wraparound point in the game. Although you're f- seamlessly flying everywhere. So it's just a big scrolling thing to you. But to the code and to the bad guys, there's this sort of invisible line. And that they consider sort of the edge of the world. So if you're on one side of the line and they're on the other, they will go the opposite direction of you because they, they think you're all the way over there. They see the map in, in that way. They don't want to scroll over. So you can use that to your advantage if, you, if you, you're you there because you can be on one side and everything wants to fly away from you and then you can sort of duck over it and shoot them and then duck back over that line. So I like that line. The international dateline is an important thing to be aware of in Defender. These are the tips, like the tips from a Defender master like me. Well, see, actually, I didn't need to, to, to come up with my own tips, Carrington, because I managed to locate a PDF online uh, of the, the original, the Video Master's Guide to Defender by Nick Brooms. It was published by Bantam Books in 1982. It's 80 pages of all the, the, the greatest um, Defender techniques that you can, that you can imagine. And, did you read and, the book? Boy, did this not help my score. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's like a 13 megabyte PDF. And it's, it's fun to read it just for the, the historical... Um, feel to it i guess you know the the scan the scan is the pages are all yellowed and and stuff like that but it's it's a fun read and and there's probably actually some very useful tips in here i obviously we only played this for a week so i didn't have time to get into it uh in depth all that much i found that because you'd never played it before (laughs) i i hadn't really played it this that much i mean just because of it i didn't feel like pumping rolls of quarter into a game that that i didn't feel would it was I was the the incremental improvement that I made for each ten or fifteen seconds that a game would last for me uh, wasn't worth the quarters that I was pumping. This is into the it. kind of game that really benefits from most modern arcades being um, time based. That you just yes. pay one price and you're in for the day. Because if you're paying by the quarter, Defender is frankly just too expensive to get good at. <laughs> Whereas when you're there, you've got four hours or a full afternoon or what have you all for one one low, low cost. Then Defender is a game you could totally walk up to and say, okay, you and me, Defender, no longer the quarter is an issue. Let's go. <laughs> uh, pay the, the, um, one of the pages in the, the Video Masters book has a few interesting facts about Defender. Uh, it says that, um, let's see, the aliens are programmed to always know where you are, which I think is very true. They were definitely had no problem finding me. And it usually costs a quarter to play. Did you know that, Carrington? I um, did know that. That's a good, good tip, though. In 1982, the game cost less than $3,000. Um, the cabinet weighed 265 pounds. And speaking of the cabinet, why don't you tell us about that, Carrington? Uh, it's nice. I mean, I really, I really like the cabinet. There's a couple things to say about it. Um, it's, it's a Williams cab and it jumps out as a Williams cab. So you've got the black, very angular shape to the cab that we get used to big metal coin door on the front, nice looking side art in a combination, like it's black cab and it's using the black behind it as the space. And then the art itself is in that dark red and, um, darkish sort of mustard yellow color that Williams had used on a few things. And it's really nice side art. I really like it. On um, the front, there's uh, uh, no kick plate art, but there is art around the control panel, which is really nice. And, uh, oh, sorry, around the the T-molding. So, which goes around the coin door. So I like that. It, I, I like when there's art, like when there's additional art on, on a cab. And the side art on the Defender cabinet is really nice too because it's basically full height. Not quite, but but 
it's up there and it's a spacey sort of scene with the nice defender logo it's got a pretty good looking um uh marquee that adds some color blue to it as well in addition to the defender logo the lean back logo um the front bezel glass that goes around the monitor has nice artwork on it too which like it's a blue and white space sort of scene so just again it, it it and it has little instructions on the right hand side so it's a it's a it's a classic pleasant looking arcade game that clearly is from the golden age it doesn't have anything that leaps out at it it's not like a sinister or a battle zone or something where you look at the cabinet and go oh my gosh what's going on there it's very much a traditional arcade cab like the the classic style but very well executed the the the, of course the the big thing about it is the the control panel so it just looks like okay go to town here are buttons buttons everywhere just (laughs) like it's basically a sorry charlie thing is what it feels like when you first walk up to it but you have the joystick on the left which again we talked about being two-way just up and down and then buttons sort of scattered willy-nilly around it for your so you've got player one and player two start but you've got your three main control buttons but then also the the hyperspace and and so you have five buttons to deal with and uh, so it's an intimidating looking control panel, I think, because the number of buttons and also they have a graphic on it that implies sort of other, not other buttons, but other display things going on just in the graphics to make it look like a real you know, NASA sort of control panel. Um, so it's an intimidating looking control panel. Like you can compare this if this is side by side to a, to a Pac-Man. One joystick in the center and a start button, and that's it. And here we've gone the complete opposite direction. We have many times talked about one of the, one of the keys to the success of classic arcades which you could walk up they were immediately understandable simple controls and go well here's a game from 81 that is either the first or the second highest money earner ever and it completely defeats that theory because it's a game that looks complicated is complicated but it's well executed i think and i like it now if you want your own version of this this cabinet there's two ways to go you can buy a full-size stand-up one. There were also, and they're more difficult to get, there were also cocktail cabs, which were less exciting because cocktails often are. Um, they are readily available, though, because it's so popular. And there were something like 55,000 of these made, like a huge number of them made. And many of them have survived because it was a lot of them made and they were very popular and have remained popular. Once It, got, it wasn't popular at the very first, like we said at the, at the show, but very quickly got popular and stayed popular. So they've been restored. There's lots of places to get um, uh, restoration parts. You can get remade control panels and side art. So it's easy, to, well, relatively easy to find the bits to restore one of these. They're not that expensive to get to because they're so plentiful. If you want to get one a lot cheaper, one way to go is to head over to wayoftherodent.com because it's got this series <laughs> of what are called paper canes. So they're, they're um, sort of exploded diagrams of oh, the, cool. the cabinet and you can print it out and it's got all the little folding tabs. You print it and you fold it and you can fold your own paper little version for um, on your desktop. And Defender is one of those and it's a neat series. So if you want to make a bunch of little stand-up arcade games, you don't have to pay anybody. You basically print them in color, cut, fold, glue, and you're done. So um, And it's nice. I wish they were higher resolution, the ones that they give, um, but it's it's nice and simple. So we'll link to that as well. So that's a really cheap way to have your own tiny little Defender that does nothing. But I could probably get a score as good on that as I could in the real one. <laughs> so, you know, nothing lost. Uh, in addition to the arcade game, there was also a – this was one. This was so popular that it uh, was one of the games that was uh, – Williams turned into a pinball machine. Uh, it looks like there were only 369 units of that produced. Um, and it was it was uh, one of the ones we, – we have. it's been a while since we've talked about um, – this kind of 
it's been a while since we've talked about this kind of game where they've also made a board game out of it. Um, and the, I guess the, I, I didn't look at this too closely, but I, I guess the, the, uh, Milton Bradley, uh, released it in 1983, and and the the idea behind it is that you win the most points by using your defendership to protect the humanoids from the waves of aliens, which is exactly what's going on in the arcade game. So I don't really know how you would make that interesting and exciting as a board game. Uh, I'm hoping that Carrington will spend a bunch of money on eBay for one of these things, and we can eventually talk about it. I want these arcade board games. Every time we talk about one of them, and I'll link to say Board Game Geek or whatever. It's got nice nice images of the 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 board game there it looks like there was two different editions of it maybe once the french edition but two slightly different editions of the board game looks super fun but berserk was one of them like so i mean zaxxon was one of these games like so many of these games became board games i want to have them all i want to play them all <laughs> i really think we should try to get these and bring them to kansas fest or something because i would love to play i like board games anyway and these just sound like super fun so i like it defender was ported to pretty much well not pretty much it looks like it was it was ported to every single console and home computer that was out uh in in the 80s and continues to be ported even to this day so uh there's really no reason not to play this on some platform although um and and if you're going to play this on mame you kind of need a joystick setup like an x arcade or something like that which has the button setup or you're going to have to go in and define uh, the key layouts because of the, the it's what three buttons on top of two buttons and um, it's easy to build muscle memory when you're playing the art the arcade version of it and then get really confused when you're trying to do the arrow key control alt or whatever um, mapping you you're playing on your keyboard so I, I found for me anyway it was easier just to plug in the the x arcade Mm-hmm. I th- it's 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 a funny combo because a lot of times and and it's been you know in our comments lately that we talk about how there are certain games that are difficult to play outside of MAME or in a real cab because of the nature of their controls. It's, a, it's you know, a Tron setup or something, which just doesn't emulate well. And here you have a game that's essentially a standard buttons and a two-way joystick. And yet it's difficult to play properly outside of a real arcade setup because of the number of buttons and the layout. So I, I, I find that an interesting combo. It's also neat that it was ported to so many like home systems that do not have enough buttons like if you look at the atari 2600 it's a it's a four-way joystick with one button and it had a very very popular version of defender and so it's funny how you have to rethink the control and rethink the game when it comes to that because you don't you no longer have five buttons you have one (laughs) button and yet let's make defender so i thought that was really interesting and like you say it was on Basically, every home system imaginable had its own version, and you know uh, there just weren't enough buttons, so most things got ported, and the games would be changed to to use uh, uh, a, like you know its native setup. Also, there were tons of games that weren't Defender, but were clearly Defender, <laughs> like, <laughs> and versions of them on everything. Like it was a game. Uh, it well, first of all, it itself had. It, it was so popular. Obviously, it had bootlegs. There's there's Mayday. There's Mirage. I found two called Defense Command, which are different games, but it's one's defense with a C and one's defense with an S. So I guess it depends on what side of the American border you're on, which game you got. But there's those. So there's lots of bootlegs. But then there were versions for the home computers at the time, like 
of the defender type game. Like there were so many defender type games. There's Defense Command, which was for TRS-80. Uh, I can think of Repton, which was an Apple II game, and I think on C64 and Atari as well. Uh, there was let me think what else. There's um, that Protector game or Protector Two or something, which was a C64 game. I played that on my my Coco, so it was a it was a color computer, and I think it was on TI ninety nine four A. There was Drop Zone, which was an Atari eight bit game, and I think also made it eventually to Sega Game Gear and other. So there was like lots of games that weren't called Defender, but that were very Defender ish. That were and Defender. I also, yeah, well, and I also think that Defender had a huge, like a lot of games picked up Defender elements. I mean, you can see parts of Defender, even as late as games like Gradius, which is 85 or 86 or something, and R-Type, which has got to be 87, totally Defender legacy games. Um, and uh, you see bits in Choplifter, like the whole idea of going and picking up the guys and 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 do you, do you try to carry a whole bunch of them, um, of these little men and women, or do you carry, you know, take them back to your base and you know, the, the extra risk of having more of them on you. And that seems Defender-like. I mean, Defender just seemed to influence so many things that came after it. And there were so many ports as well and bootlegs and, and handheld versions like uh, Entrex and, and Gakken, I think both had the VFD versions. I'm pretty sure there was one also by Tiger, and I think, but I'm not sure, but if there are, I will link to them. I think there's versions now for iOS and Android, maybe? I'm sure there is, yeah. Yeah, I bet there are. And Palm had one. I know that THQ made uh, a Defender for mobile phones, like, in, the, in like 2002 or 2003 <laughs> or something. Like, there was a Defender for that kind of mobile phone. Mobile phone. So, I mean, it's... Obviously, on PlayStation, it's been in t- tons and tons of things. So it's a game with a massive legacy in both bootlegs and influence and, I think, direct sequels. Because Stargate's like a direct sequel to... Isn't there a legacy? I think there's a genealogy, an official genealogy for the yeah. way that it goes. Yeah, so there there are, were four sequels. Um, there was... Um, well, there, there, I'm sorry, there are four games in the series. There was uh, uh, Defender in 1980... And there was a game called Stargate, which was released in nineteen later in nineteen eighty one, and had nothing to do with the the movies or anything like that. Uh, it, it was also called Defender Two or Defender Stargate. There's a whole legal thing uh, around Stargate because it was developed. It was developed by Eugene Jarvis, but it was he developed it at, as part of um, his own studio rather than at Williams. And so so and when we talk about Stargate, which I'm sure we will at some point in the future, we'll get into that. In 1991, there was a game called uh, Strike Force, and then Defender 2000 was released in 1996 for the Atari. But Jack Strike Force, I think, is Midway. It's totally a Defender game. Like you look at it, it's like okay, that's Defender. Because I remember that from like it's Strike Force came out basically when I stopped going to arcades. Like that's what do you say, 91 something like that? 91. Um, yes. Yeah, but I'm pretty and, sure that's a Midway game, not a Williams game. It, it has a very different look, but it's totally, it's totally a, you know, we want to make Defender game. It's completely Defender, but just with a different look. Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a Midway game. It definitely is Defender and it was, uh, um, it is, it is the officially the, the third game in the Defender series because they, they licensed it from, from Williams. Oh, I did yep. not see eventually if we ever talk about Strike Force. I'm going to learn that at that time. I'm going to refuse to learn it now. <laughs> But before that, you're not going to learn it at all. Nope. Learn, learn what? Um, oh, I don't remember what we just talked about. You talked about the the influence uh, as far as other games and, and culture and, and things like that. It it, uh, it was so popular that it appeared in the 1983 movie Terms of Endearment. Uh, of course, it was in the 1983 movie Joysticks. And weirdly, it was in another 1983 movie called Koyana Skatsi, which 
is a very, very strange movie that doesn't have anything to do with plot or character or anything. It's, it's mostly just things like falling over and being destroyed. Some would argue um, that joysticks is also. <laughs> well, I, mean, I guess it technically has plot. But oh my goodness. True. It's true. There, there's well, a movie. And now every time I hear Koi Anascotsi, I think of that scene. Uh, I, I, I used to be a big fan of the – there's a, a sitcom called Scrubs uh, with Zach Braff. Of course. And yeah, I like that one. There's a scene where the janitor and three other uh, hospital staffers like walk past Zach Braff's character and they give him the evil eye and it's all, all in slow motion and the Koi on the Scotsy song is playing in the background. And, and so that's stuck in my head for some reason. Um, it, uh, a mini Defender unit appeared in the 1983 music video Almost Over You by Sheena Easton. And, and of course, it got the Buckner and Garcia treatment and that sounds a little bit like this. Actually, Manila Road also had a song called Defender. And the Beastie Boys, Body Movin', <laughs> that mentions, because he says, you know, if you ask me to trip the bass and if you play Defender, I could be your hyperspace. Oh, that's right. If yes. I would believe are the lyrics. Forgotten about that. And now... I guess it's that time of the podcast where we talk about we embarrass ourselves and let people know how poorly we did. Well, you know how you uh, get 25 points if you get shot? I got 25 points. <laughs> <laughs> For getting shot, yes. Well, first of all, I did just as badly as I thought I would do. Well, before we talk about scores, though, we should talk about that there were a, different, a number of different ROM sets. Um, uh, I played were, the hardest ROM set. <laughs> of course you did. Totally. So there, there are three early edition ROM sets. There's the white label, green label, and blue label. And those are – the white label is, is the hard, known to be the hardest of all of the sets. Totally what I played. Um, and then the later edition is the, the red label, which has all of the bugs worked out. There, there are a number of bugs in some of those earlier ROMs, which we didn't talk about. And you can look those up uh, on Google if you want to. So, of course, I also played – I played the extra you secret the, white you, label, you which was even – You played the easiest one. I played the extra secret white label, which was even harder. Than, than I so. played the the Snow White label <laughs> that, that your man doesn't even appear on screen. I see. Well, how'd you do, Carrington? Um, well, we were talking about this before we recorded, and I was looking <laughs> through my screenshots, and so Mike already knows that he beat me. Is disappointing. <laughs> so there's no there's no surprise at this end. Uh, there's also no surprise that I did poorly this game. I've never I've never been great, great at this game. I believe in my past I've seen Wave Four. I didn't see it this week. <laughs> Wave one is relatively easy to get past because there's not a lot. There's really only the basic bad, bad shooter guys. Um, Are you just stalling? Is that what's going on? Here? Kind of. Uh, mm. I had thought for a while that my high score was 42,250 because I opened my screenshots. But looking over my screenshots now, I did slightly better on one other time. My, my actual high score is 54,500. Not great. In fact, some would argue laughably horrible. <laughs> <laughs> So I believe that was on wave three. 
I'm just, it's not my game, man. I didn't have a lot of time to play it this week, but really that's not an excuse. I've never been great at this game. I don't think I've ever hit 100,000 points ever, even when I've played a lot at an arcade. It's just not my, it's just not my jam, as I believe Quinn Dunkey once said to me. <laughs> so um, yes, 54,500 is my embarrassingly bad score. They will now put up the underground retrocade and point and laugh at me. So what about you, Mike? How'd you do? I did a little bit better, but only because I finally got it out of my head where I was trying to to think about which button I had to push for what action, and it you started all five buttons. It just started button mashing, right? Like like I'm playing Street Fighter or something. But uh, I f- I finally got to the point where yeah the 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 actions felt a little bit more normal and, and natural, and that's kind of when my score went up a little bit. Not not great. I still didn't crack a hundred thousand. Um, I got to the six level, and that got me eighty eight thousand six hundred and fifty points. The that's at least respectful. I'm just <laughs> respectable, not respectful. It shows show me some respect. Get a, get a worse score. I I'm refuse. Just, it's not that I don't like this game. I do. I think it's a classic. It's one of those games where you set up a new main setup, it just automatically goes into the favorites. It might, like it just it's 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 just one of the greats. I'm just terrible at it. It's just I can't I don't know. I, I'm an adventure gamer, man. <laughs> this is too twitchy for me. Well, I I actually am really glad that we played it this week um, because uh, like you, my my attitude has been that this is a very hard game that I suck at and I will always suck. And I finally feel like I've made a little progress. Of course I'm, you know, old and decrepit now and my, my reflexes are are going. And and so I won't ever do much better than this, but I finally kind of, I finally beat some of the scores and, and levels that, that I was never able to get past as a kid. And that felt pretty good. And I had a good time playing it, even though, yes, it's, it's extremely difficult. I had a great time too. I mean, honestly, my summary would be: I love this game. I think it's a classic. I think I think it's a classic for a reason. I think it's remarkably well implemented for a game that was yeah. created in 1980, yeah. even if released in 1981. So much polish and so they they wrote it in assembly language, and just thank goodness for that because that just unlocked so much speed and so much polish and so much little graphical flourishes that are just so wonderfully smooth. It's just so smooth and hard and just. <laughs> Beats me down, but I well, still admire the heck out of it. The Defender sees lots of alien ships. The Defender sees lots of radar blips. Every blip is a ship. Watch this, I got this guy. On a body snatching trip. And it's up to Defender to save them. Defender, a great Atari game. Have you played Defender? It's the newest of the smash hit home video games that just keep coming. Only from Atari. He's better than me. And and speaking of of little flourishes and polish and stuff like that, so some of the games that we've reviewed in the past, we talk about the the manuals and and a lot of them look like they were written by the designer's five year old nephew with a box of crayons after he'd been eating Vicodin for a couple of days or something like that. Um, this even even the even the game manuals with Defender are kind of a level above everything else that I've seen so far. So you've got this forty page booklet that's the theory of operation and it goes into the cpu and video board and the rom board and and, and all that and how it works and and it also has like a, a quick start guide which is neat because it's in it's it, it actually has images in color which you never saw with game uh, arcade manuals back then um and kind of the quick up and running setup and and diagnostic and so everything about the game even even the, the parts of the game that weren't part of the gameplay like the game manuals for example are are just kind of above and beyond and and that's i think one of the reasons that it's you know 
the number two, the number two arcade game of all time. Would you, would you have one of these? I absolutely would. Yeah, I, I sure would. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter that, that, um, like, I, you know, you can, you can play this and you can play it well in MAME if you have uh, a joystick or even if you learn your keyboard and you, you reprogram the, the MAME keys. But this is still one I would, I would want to have as a, as a standard. I think so too. I think it's an essential. I think if you have an arcade, like an actual, like arcade or a larger collection, it would seem incomplete without it. It's sort of like the default. Like you, you have to have a Pac-Man. You have to have a defender. It's just, it's just one of those things where it's not my favorite game. Would even make my top ten favorite game list. But it just seems so essential to the canon of games that any, if you walked in an arcade and they, like a classic arcade, a retro arcade, and they didn't have it, it would feel weird. Like I could see somebody not having Stargate, classic game, but technically it's like the next Defender. But Defender is just such an important game. It's kind of weird to not have one. Right. Yeah. It's. It's it's something that yeah I think it, I think a collection would feel incomplete without it yeah and I guess we'll wrap up with this Chris Hoffman holds the official world record for this game on marathon settings at seventy nine million nine hundred seventy six thousand nine hundred seventy five points set on January first nineteen eighty four Bill Jones holds the official record for the tournament settings with five hundred forty three thousand nine hundred fifty points oh my goodness set August fifteenth two thousand eight. I was so close. We were. Yeah, just we were right there, man. Just a couple I could just more hit minutes. that warp button just a little faster. Right, yeah. We were, I mean, just a few more minutes and we'd have had it, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there, there is this funny thing where you can, if you're playing a, like a marathon version of the game, like you're going to go through and you're not going to be you or me. You're going to actually, you know, go for a super high score. You can do this freeze thing. You can def- you can freeze a defender machine. You know, we often talk about how, how do you play these games for, for hours on end? Because like, what if you have to pee or whatever? Right. So I guess, okay, so let me, I'll read it from Cloth because I don't even really understand this. So Yeah, uh, I found this by accident, accident. Yeah, so freeze. You can freeze a defender machine. This I'm reading directly. You can freeze a defender machine by picking up all 10 humanoids on any wave, but wave one is your greatest chance of success. Stopping all forward motion of your ship quieting the screen down that is having no enemies moving around it and setting all humans straight down quickly this seems to work better where the train is very close to the bottom of the screen everything will freeze but you can still move your ship up and down thrusting will break the spell so to speak if you do pick a spot with a shallow train some humanoids will go through the bottom of the screen and appear suspended in midair near the top this trick is good to use during marathon games when you've reached wave 256 (laughs) and need a breather yes i would need a breather by then um so it's interesting that this game has that i guess bug in it um that would let you say okay you're gonna go on for literally days at a time and if you're that good here's how you Take a breather, or go to the bathroom, or take a nap, or something. I guess crazy. I forgot to mention that uh, obviously Eugene Jarvis uh, led the programming team for Defender. Uh, his staff included Sam Dicker, Larry Demar, Paul Desalt, uh, Mike Stroll, and Steve Ritchie. And Mike McGinnis. Aha! Ah, yes, you <laughs> caught me. Do it. And yet I still suck. Thirty years later. Well, you said you're decrepitly old. <laughs> maybe <laughs> you should be better at it. <laughs> well, maybe we'll be better at next week's game, Carrington. Couldn't be worse. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, please don't, please be gentle with us. We, we know that uh, we didn't do justice for, for the all the ins and outs of this game but like we said there's there's not um 
there's not a lot you can say about Defender that hasn't been said already. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>